Well, good morning. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Looking today at verses 11 through 15, page 954 in the Bibles we have here. Everyone experiences temptation, temptation to sin. As believers, what we are experiencing is a tension between what we want to do that is right and our struggle that we want to do that which is wrong. And what our passage today is teaching us in God's Word is that that struggle, that temptation, tension is not hopeless. We are not helpless as believers. God did not adopt you into his family to abandon you into a world of temptation for you to handle it yourself, improve yourself. He brought you into his family and he will provide what you need to deal with the struggle with sin that is unique uh, to you. What really our passage is saying today is that what Jesus accomplished for us when he died on the cross and rose again was to deliver us not only from the penalty of sin, which is usually our focus, but also to deliver us from the power of sin. And so Paul addresses uh, our need for power as he writes to the Colossian church with a maybe odd to us illustration. It's an illustration of two biblical, physical rituals, circumcision and baptism. Circumcision was prescribed and practiced in the Old Testament age. Baptism is prescribed and we now practice it today as part of the New Testament age. And the two are not contrasted, and it's not about one bad and one good. It's even not about one expired and one is still uh, current, and it, that's true. But rather, both of these rituals physically are illustrating the spiritual need we have for the power that's only available through our relationship with Christ. Verse 11 and 12. In him, referring to Christ, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision, baptism, is all pointing towards Christ. And so circumcision was an external symbol in the Old Testament era of uh, our need for what was actually an internal transformation. Most of us know that circumcision is a small surgery done on baby boys. In Old Testament times, it was unique to the Jewish people. It was God's way of reminding them constantly that they are different from the world. 
Whatever even medical reason God may have had in mind, the real point was the spiritual uniqueness of those who were related to him. And so even in uh, in the Old Testament, God tried to make that clear. It was internal. This external ritual was an, had an internal focus. He told uh, the people through Jeremiah the prophet, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, the temptation is that anytime there's a physical ritual uh, 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 that's associated with things that are spiritual, we get all focused on the physical I gotta do this and, and doing this ritual somehow makes me more spiritual when the point was it was simply to point us to our need for the spiritual. So circumcision was to direct the minds of the Old Testament believer to their devotion to God spiritually. So what is the point of Paul bringing this up to the Colossian church? In him, Christ, you were circumcised. And at the end of verse 11, the circumcision done by Christ. The, the, the people of Colossae in that church, uh, I'm pretty convinced would have been, would have included both Jews and non-Jews. And yet, because Jews were everywhere throughout the empire, everybody was associated with the Jewish religion, if you will. And so they were aware of this, of this, uh, physical act. And so Paul is explaining it that it's really a spiritual circumcision that God always had in mind. And um, my translation says the putting off of the sinful nature. You may have the term, uh, there's a wide variety, body of sin, whole self ruled by flesh, body of sin. It's a word flesh, but here's what is clear. That Paul had in mind that Christ has done something for those who believe in him, that this ritual was to picture and it has to do in fact with our sinful nature when christ died on the cross bearing the penalty for our sin he was addressing our sinful nature and it's like a surgery he says he performed a spiritual surgery for us as we come to faith in christ that surgery has been done for us And so there is a real sense in which we have to understand we are different than our unbelieving world, unbelieving neighbors. And so while we might observe, you know, know, the people out there, there's so much sin and they do this stuff and my, my, my neighbor swears and yells or my coworker is so immoral and it's so disgusting and we can... Do you realize that in, though they are fully accountable for what they do, that yet there is a reality in which they really cannot change themselves internally because they do not have what we have in Christ. We are not powerless. They are powerless to change from within, but we are not. So when we feel this tension, this struggle, the the temptation to sin, We have to make sure we don't think like they think. Because what we sometimes do, even as believers, is we excuse ourselves and say, well, that's just the way I am. That's just my weakness. You know, I just, I just always been that way. And, you know, I just blunt and I say what I think. And, and it just takes me a while to get over things. And, and we excuse ourselves by our personality. But what we really must admit is, yes, that is my sinful personality and Christ has enabled me to break some of those bondages. And I don't have to be 
the way I've always been. Circumcision illustrates that Christ is the only solution. And then he just, without even really changing sentences, merges into baptism, a a, a non-expired ritual, because now baptism, when we think of water baptism, is is something that Christ prescribed for today. Uh, Actually, two weeks from today, you'll see a, a tank up here, and we will have a baptism. Water baptism. What, what is what is water baptism illustrated? It's a physical thing we do, but what does it point into? It's really the very same thing. And in a real sense, I think verse 12 is answering questions that would be raised by verse 11. Because in verse 11, you, you see this phrase, circumcision by Christ. Okay, Paul, could you explain that? Well, yes, I can, he says. In this sense, having been buried with him, Christ, in baptism, and raised with him, Christ, through your faith in the power of God who raised him, Christ, from the dead. Oh, so now we are clearly pointed to the reality of the power available through the resurrection of Christ and the fact that we have been somehow linked and identified with that as believers. Um, while we read that word baptism, we instantly think about the physical baptism, and we're supposed to because physical baptism is a picture that's kind of cemented in our in our minds. But when we read this, the focus is not so much on the water baptism, but rather on the spiritual baptism that takes place instantaneously when we come to faith and believe in Christ as our Savior. The water of baptism pictures the spiritual baptism, much like, and I like this illustration, is much like a ring, which is physical, indicates an invisible but real marriage. It would be meaningless for someone to wear a ring like this if they were not married. Uh, Friday night, we went out to eat, and... uh, just happened to notice that the uh, there's a young couple sitting in the table next to us, and as um, as they got their meal before ours, it was interesting because uh, they sat sitting across the table from each other, and they reached over and held hands and prayed before eating their meal. I thought, well, that's that is neat. And I couldn't resist; I didn't want to interrupt them. But I I said, hey, I just really appreciate being seeing someone who's who's also willing to you know thank the Lord for the food, and uh, I left it at that and. But I was just kind of curious. They're a young couple. I thought, I wonder if they're married. So I glanced over. How did I figure this out? <laughs> there was no ring. And so I was even more encouraged that a young couple in their dating life are, are already acknowledging Christ in their relationship. But you see, this symbol tells us about their status. Because when when you get married and put on these rings, you are indicating that we have a new identity, a united identity. And in fact, you now have a united capacity. When Priscilla and I got married, we uh, put on rings just after the vows. And at that moment, her identity, her, her last name that is, changed, as well as our capacity, we now had joint ownership of everything. And I married Rich. 
because she had $300 left over to buy a new bedroom set. I had spent my $300 on a ring previously. But now everything was joined because we were now identified with each other. When you are spiritually you are spiritually baptized when you believe in Christ. You receive a new identity, but you also receive a new capacity. And things that are only true of Christ are now also true of you. Do we realize that we have new abilities because of our relationship with Christ by faith? That's what he's saying. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the The big word is power here. That's his focus. Faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You have power you didn't have. Paul makes a similar point in Romans about our power to overcome sin when he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We shouldn't be trying to take advantage of grace to to feed our sinful nature. It should be just the opposite. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, his power, right? We too might walk or live in a new way, walk in newness of life. And this this is about our spiritual baptism, though it's perfectly illustrated by water baptism. You can live differently. You can face temptations and weaknesses and and personality sins, if you will, differently because you have been joined to Christ. Did you notice these phrases in, uh, in Colossians here? Buried with him, raised with him. In fact, in the Greek language, those are single words, co buried and co raised. So that what happened to Christ 2,000 years ago, in some real sense, happened to us. How can that be? That was, that was so long ago. But that's how new identities work. I've had the privilege of, of being in a courtroom when, when a, a young, young boy was adopted. The moment that adoption was final... That child, though young and unknowing, became an heir. Became an heir of the assets of mom and dad. Assets they may have earned, gained, purchased, acquired 20 years ago. But now they are an heir of those things. And likewise, when we are adopted into the family of God, when we are when we believe in Christ, benefits that were accomplished 2,000 years ago, are now on our account. And we have this new power. We were buried together. We were made alive together. And that's why the picture of water baptism is so good, so compelling. The reason we baptize by immersion is because, A, it seems from the book of Acts, that's how they did it then, but B, because it illustrates so well these spiritual realities of being buried with Christ and raised again with a new capacity to walk in newness of life. Now, when, when, when you were first saved, 
when you first believed in Christ, it could well be that the main focus on your mind was that God had the power to save you through from hell, from eternal judgment, because of your faith in Christ who paid your penalty. Wow. Understandably, that's often first on our mind. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But at the same moment that you are trusting him to save you from sin's penalty, he was giving you the capacity to be freed from sin's power as well. How much power? Through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So that resurrection power, that's how much power we have. We have the power of the resurrection that is now applied to us because of our link with Christ, that we have that ability. So you could say it perhaps this way. Your faith in the power of Christ's resurrection not only guarantees you will live in heaven, it guarantees you have power to overcome sin on earth. Resurrection power not only guarantees we will live in heaven, resurrection power ensures that we have the capacity, the power, the ability, his ability to overcome sin on earth. And many Christians, it seems, never make that connection. And so we feel like we've you know, accomplished everything because now we live confident that when I die, I'll go to heaven. And completely ignoring the incredible resource we have that we can be truly delivered from temptation. So when Jesus prayed or told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, we're supposed to pray like that. Do we pray that prayer? Do, do, we, do, we, do we communicate to God? God, deliver me. Don't lead me to temptation. Deliver me from... Maybe the reason we don't pray for deliverance from temptation is that we kind of like temptation. We kind of like to live on the edge because of this compelling uh, struggle, attraction with sin. But if we pray it, God is promising this is a prayer he wants to answer and now we see we have the power to be delivered walk in newness of life so we've been buried with him in baptism it is important to be baptized by water i I urge you to do so christ said to go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father. And we see in the New Testament, they did then, the book of Acts, they did exactly that. In fact, you'll notice that every baptism in the New Testament was immediately after a person had come to faith in Christ. It was not a matter of, you know, you first have to prove yourself worthy of it. Going back to the ring illustration, I didn't wait to put this ring on until I earned the right, you know, you know, I've, have I earned my stripes to be a good enough husband? I don't know if I'd be wearing it yet. But rather, we put it on right away because it indicates our commitment to be growing in this relationship. And that's why we need to say this is the starting point. So I urge you to be baptized with water, but even more importantly, as you do that, 
make sure you are realizing what you are symbolizing, that Christ has given you resurrection power for the growth and, and, and progress and the victory over sin that he had in mind. It's kind of interesting that uh, he really is focused here on the resurrection and then, as we now move to verses 13 through 15, he goes back to the cross. might seem chronologically backwards, but it's not. It's like he said, here is what you can have. You can have the power of the resurrection in your life. How do you get that power? Well, it's because of the death of Christ, and you now are made alive as well. When you were dead in your, in your sins... You may have the word trespasses. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision, keeping that picture of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. If we, um, you have these in your outline, but let me just put up here kind of a summary of what these verses are telling us. We are forgiven and we are now freed, unshackled from that bondage of sin. In this sense, we are no longer enslaved to sin, that is, its power. We are no longer condemned and Satan no longer has power over us. We are no longer enslaved or in bondage or obligated to sin. We are no longer condemned by God and Satan no longer has power over us. Is there anything in this list that you long for? Is there anything in this list that you have found yourself believing the opposite and it's weighed you down as a believer in Christ? Because if you have been believing something than this, other than this, it's a lie. It didn't come from God. It came from the enemy who, who is always pushing deception and lies contrary to the truths of God's word, particularly the truths of our salvation and God's grace for us. So first of all, we are no longer enslaved to sin because we're not dead spiritually we're alive spiritually when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature god made you alive with christ the difference is is as opposite dead to live to to alive when you were spiritually dead it means you were in a state in which you were you could not fix yourself dead people can do what nothing so you were spiritually unable unfixable in that state. And so before you believe, that was us. But now we have been what? Made alive. How were we dead? We were dead in, in sin in two ways. Notice the difference. Dead in your sins, plural, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Uh, I would go with that translation or at least that explanation, but the word is the flesh. And so... There is sin in two senses that we were struggling with. Sins are the choices we know that we've made. 
They're a little more objective. They might be things that we do, though they can also be thoughts and attitudes that we have. But sins are choices. But then you have the sinful nature, sinful flesh. And that is that by nature, we are sinful. And we are are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We have a sinful nature from Adam on. Everyone is born with a sinful nature. So did Christ die to solve our sins or our sinful nature? Answer, both. He, he died to address both. And so he had to make us spiritually alive because while we still do have our sinful nature, make no mistake, until the day we die, we have our sinful nature. We now also have the new nature, which is the new capacity to obey God in the power of the resurrected Christ, which is then given us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, which, though that is not the focus of Paul and Colossians. We are made alive. So, so how does that work? How does the power of the resurrection translate into transformed living? How do we engage this new power of the resurrection that we have? Uh, in, uh, in this parallel passage on the same subject, Paul in Romans 6 again, as was uh, we looked at before, describes essentially a two-step process. See if you can, can, can understand the progression. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Consider is a mental, though spiritual, uh, step of acknowledging what is true. Then it says, therefore, do not let sin reign or rule in your mortal body, what you actually do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so that you would obey its desires and do not go on presenting the members of your body, uh, eyes, mind, thoughts, whatever, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. You are alive spiritually. So he's saying live that way. But it involves really, in a sense, a two-step process. Because we can know the truths we've been discussing today and never put them to practice, though they are, they are available to us. It's like if you had the money to buy a brand new airplane, you could own the airplane, but if you have no ability to fly it, it's just going to sit there. So do you put into practice, do you engage the power that you have? The first step is to realize, mentally, spiritually, focus on this truth. Consider yourselves to be, what it says, dead to sin, alive to God. Sin can no longer enslave or have me in bondage. I am not obligated to sin. Instead, I am alive to God. So, faced with temptation with your temper or lust or bitterness or whatever it might be, you, you remind yourself of this truth very deliberately remembering that you have been co-buried, co-raised. You are linked with Christ. Christ is present at the moment. You are thinking about Christ. Christ is thinking about you. And suddenly you realize you have this new life and new capacity. Consider yourselves dead to sin. And now don't keep presenting your body to do those things, your mouth, the things you say, the things you think, the things you see. Don't keep doing that. 
but instead present them to God. And so you have the same temptation to temper or, 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 or boasting or gossiping or walk away from the conflict. Stop what you were saying. Don't click what you were going to click. Turn off what you were indulging, whatever it is. And say, I'm not going to, I don't need to present my members to unrighteousness. I am alive and I can present these to God. And so I'm not just the way I've always been or this is that I'm enslaved to this because in reality, you know, you've considered, you know that you are not. And so now you can act differently with the power of Christ himself. And then repeat. And then repeat. And then repeat. And bring your focus to who you are in Christ. And you begin to discover the power of sin is diminished in your life and that is spiritual growth you can do that your vulgar neighbor your immoral co-worker can't you can we are not enslaved to sin next truth we are no longer condemned i think there's really like a new sentence uh, you could say at the end of verse 13 he forgave us all our sins Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to, a, to the cross. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, our, re, of the, our status, that God is no longer condemning us. In his, his view of us, he no longer condemns us for our sin. One of the most disheartening lies that we as believers can falsely believe is that we're living under God's condemnation. We know what we have done. And so we assume God is disgusted with us. He is fed up with us. I have so broken my relationship with God. I don't, I don't even think he can care about me anymore. And so then our deceived sinful heart reasons. So I just might as well just plunge back into the impulses, the addictions, the venting of my anger, whatever it is. And we have just piled up a stack of lies that are not true. Because opposed to that understanding of our particular batch of sin, we have this. He forgave us all our sins. In fact, this word for forgive is based on the word grace. I don't deserve to be forgiven. Of course not. That's the nature of God's forgiveness. His forgiveness is not conditional. It is undeserved. He forgave. He graced us with forgiveness. How? By canceling the written code that was against us. This is probably an allusion to the Old Testament law, which when you boil it down, is a whole list of things that nobody can actually keep. As we would think about it, it's like there's a whole list of everything we've ever done against God's law, which we couldn't ever remember or write it all down. But if you picture that entire list, known by God on, in, in, in one sense, but this says he canceled it. The word means erased. He erased it. The whole list. In, in Bible times, there were uh, financial records that were kept on parchment. And you could take cloth in water and you could scrub them off. Like erasing number two pencils, if you remember those. 
You you could erase them. God did that. He did that. Her entire sin debt was scrubbed from the record. So how does God see us now? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. From God's perspective, you are now at peace with him. Because you earned that peace, because now you, you, you've, you've brought yourself up to a level that he can accept you, what does it say? No, we were justified by faith. Justified means that the righteousness of God, or rather the righteousness of Christ, specifically has been put on our account. So God is just to see us this way. Because our sins have been erased by faith in Christ, and the righteousness of Christ had been put on that record. And so now God is just when he says, I'm at peace with you because you put your faith in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or later on in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, con- how much? no condemnation but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in this relationship, co-buried, co-raised, you put your faith in Christ, what is true of him is now true of you, you are forgiven by his grace, then you are at peace and there is no condemnation. He pictures it even more graphically at the end of verse 14. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So we picture Christ Nailed to the cross. What was really being nailed to the cross was our sin. Thursday night, Thursday evening at our board meeting, we had the privilege of hearing a uh, testimony from membership from uh, Michelle Defendi, and she gave me permission to share this. Michelle was baptized this past summer at our ice cream social where we have the outdoor baptism. Some of you perhaps were there and heard her testimony. As she was uh, telling it to us, she described how she came to faith in Christ uh, just this past Good Friday. We had our first event in the uh, Discipleship Center. Some of you were here, and we went from room to room, just reliving, if you will, what Christ uh, went through for us. And as as you came to a room that had, there was a cross, a literal cross, and you were to write, I understand, I was out of town, but in, in white chalk, your sins, write your sins. Then take a nail and hammer it to the cross. Michelle says that's when she fully realized that all of her sin was put on Christ and Christ was punished for her. And she placed her faith in Christ. I don't often get teary-eyed in board meetings, but when I do, (laughs) it's when people share testimonies of how they have come to faith in Christ. That is the truth you need to know. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ alone to forgive your sins, that's the key truth you must understand is that Christ on the cross was bearing the guilt of all of your sin. Your sin was nailed to the cross. He bore it for you. And your step is to simply put your faith 
Put your trust personally in what he did for you. And then all of these things we've described today are true. And we are released from the penalty of sin and we receive the capacity to have power over sin. If you have not made that decision, I would urge you to talk with uh, one of us uh, pastors or somebody here you know that uh, you believe could help you with that. What strikes me, though, is that Paul was not writing this to unbelievers. He was writing this to believers like you may be. You've already put your faith in Christ, so why does he stress this? He stresses this because knowing this and cementing this in our hearts that we have a truly forgiven status and we are no longer condemned is absolutely crucial to our spiritual victory over ongoing sin and temptation. Because when we sin, we feel guilty. And that guilt is legitimate. It's real guilt because we realize in our heart and spirit that there is now a contradiction because we are sinning though we are forgiven. And that's, that's the contradiction. We're supposed to feel that guilt. It's a warning sign to us that we need to restore with God our relationship and address that sin. But we are misreading that guilt if we then make the assumption, therefore God is condemning me because he's not. And because our salvation was never in jeopardy, even though we still are struggling with sin. That's what grace is. That's what forgiveness is. That's what it means when it said it's erased or canceled. That's what it means when it says it's been nailed to the cross. And so our view of how God views us is going to be crucial to our spiritual progress. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a, uh, a, a meme on a, on a friend from the Philippines. And uh, I thought it was helpful because all memes are, right? Kidding. Here's the contrast. Religion, that would be man-made ideas about spiritual things, says this, I messed up, my dad's going to kill me. But sonship, what we've been describing, I messed up, I need to call my dad. You see the difference? What's your view of God? I'm living under his condemnation because of our sin, my sin, or I messed up. I really, really need him. Now, you should always check your memes against Scripture, so I did. This is a good one. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was here, and he felt the full brunt of temptation. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See what it's saying? When we mess up, when we're struggling with messing up, when we've messed up for years and years and years because all these things have become habitual and ruts in our life, we're supposed to go to him and say, I know you understand the pull of sin because, Christ, you experienced it. And I am coming to you because I know you are gracious, not condemning. And so I know you desire to help me. And so his grace means he will give us undeserved help. We don't even deserve the help. But we go to him. I messed up. I really need to call my dad. How do you see him? Because we have access to that power. And how we view, how God views us will determine if we feel hopeless or not. Or hopeful. Confident. Because we are sons. So... 
no longer enslaved to sin, verse 13, no longer condemned, verse 14, one more amazing assurance, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is, this is a victory scene. He disarmed rulers and authorities. These rulers and authorities are evil angels, Satan and his demonic forces. These are exactly the terms used previously, chapter 1, verse 16, where we learned that Jesus Christ created all things, including powers and authorities, the entire spirit realm, which includes, in this case, in this context, the evil angels and Satan himself. Because they are propagating in that invisible world we don't fully understand, the lies, the perversions, and the distractions that that keep us from the word, that, that keep us from the truth. Because guess who wants to keep us living in defeat? Guess who wants to keep us um, believing the lies of hopelessness? Guess who wants us to believe that we are, we've probably lost our salvation, you know? Satan hates us and he fights against us with lies and fears. Lies and fears. That's his, that's his weapons. But what does this verse say? Christ disarmed him, stripped him of those weapons if we remember that he's stripped Satan of his weapons. If we are focused on the truth, we understand that Satan is disarmed and powerless over the person who is considering himself dead to sin and alive to God and not presenting the members of his body for this, but remembering what Christ did and presenting himself to God. So for, for the person who is focused on and practicing those truths, Satan's power is disarmed. In fact, made a public spectacle of them, those rulers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. <laughs> This is language from a uh, military uh, victory parade. If the general had won the battle, he will come back into, into the city in a parade, and with him will be the, the accompanying victorious soldiers, the spoils of war, the prisoners of war. It's like a ticker tape parade. Christ won. He conquered the power of sin and of Satan for us. And when we hear testimonies of faith in Christ, maybe personally in a group or maybe part of a baptism uh, uh, remembrance service, um, what we are watching is a victory parade. And we are to be public about our, our assurances and confidence in Christ that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer condemned. Satan no longer has the power, the leverage of guilt over you. And so whatever it is you struggle with, your temper, lust, attitudes of pride, Addictions, 
alcohol, bitterness. You know, I don't know your list. You know, the Spirit knows what you struggle with. To realize that Christ has conquered the power of that area of sin and is offering it to us that we not only by faith in Christ have the assurance we will be in heaven when we die, but that we can have ongoing growth in our struggle with sin on earth while we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and a wonderful Father. And you have provided everything we need for life and godliness by your power. We thank you for eternal life, the assurance that on the day of our death we will join you forever in heaven. Thank you. But we want to thank you this morning as well that you have provided everything we need the power of the resurrection applied to the struggle of our life so that we can grow in godliness. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.